Okay, so let's, with these summaries, I don't want this to be in the way. With these summaries, um, let's, let's kind of dig into the tabernacle. Such an obscure topic, but hopefully you saw it come alive this week. Um, and saw the Bible teach the Bible as we moved around Scripture and, and found more understanding. And I hope that you were even delighted as the text, as the Bible study moved us to the devotional level where we saw obscure, ancient things actually make its way to our heart and, and poke and push us near to Jesus. So, like I said, as I was, this is the very first time that I am teaching on something um, that I've already taught on. So that was kind of an interesting week for me. I was texting a friend. I was like, oh, that's, you know, we taught on this. Goodness, I bet it was like at the Big White House. Yep. And the study was called Where God Dwells. So I bet we're talking six years ago. Yeah. Five years ago. Yeah. Okay. Um, so this was the first time that I was like, oh, do I, am I allowed to just pull up my notes and a <laughs> little copy and paste um, and just sit back for the week, um, which I don't think would be the worst thing ever. But I was just encouraged that, you know, we're a different room of women, even if you were in that last room, like we are living creatures, spiritual creatures that have changed in the last five years. Um, but also this word is so living and active that there is so much that we can unpack. And so I did not copy and paste. And so the way that I approached this text was asking the question, well, what problem is it solving? And it's kind of like from last week, that principalizing bridge. This is kind of another way to get to that theological idea. And pretty simple, what I landed on was the problem that it's seeking to solve is separation from God. Separation from God. My boys were able to understand that. I, I made them all kind of run through this this week. I'm sure they loved it and listened to my ideas. And they could all get that, that the tabernacle solves the problem of separation from God. So then, I, I think the next most natural question, guys, to ask is when we see that there's a problem, is we say, well, where'd this problem come from? When did this problem begin? And I think you guys know that the problem of separation from God started not long after in the beginning. Like page three of our Bible, we could say, is where this happens. It starts in Eden. And what is Eden? It's a utopic home. It's a perfect home where God walked with his children, untainted, face-to-face, in perfect communion with them. God ruled as king, and he dwelt with his children. Guys, what was Eden? But it was like a garden home, a sanctuary home. And hopefully you saw some nods to Eden this week from Exodus. It was flowing with, like rivers flowed out of Eden. And from Genesis chapter 2, guys, you actually can look at this little detail that in these rivers that flowed out of Eden are the exact same gems that we read about in Exodus 25 through 30. In those rivers, you would see gold, and you would see delium, and you would see onyx. This was a beautiful place. There was fruit-bearing trees and, of course, the tree of life. What was the plan for God's good home, for Eden? The original plan was that that goodness would extend beyond its boundaries. Adam and Eve, as the first priests, were given this job to subdue, to have dominion, to multiply, essentially to take 
that Edenic goodness and bust it out of the walls of the garden and to fill the whole earth with it. That was God's original plan. To think of them as the first priest also shows that one of their jobs was to protect God's home, to be guardians for it. And that's where our story turns sad. Did they do a good job of guarding the temple home? No, instead of subduing and having dominion over the serpent, they make him get way, allow him to get way too cozy. We see the serpent make a home for himself there in Eden. The sin from without hooked on to the doubt within them, kind of worked in tandem with the doubt within their souls and rebellion ensues and the story kind of unspirals into chaos. Adam and Eve at this moment are evicted kicked out of their home, exiles. Guardians were then put outside the home, taking their job as guardians of Eden, protecting an un unholy people from a holy God. The guardians were giving flaming swords, as if to say, if you want to come back in here, you'll have to go under the sword. That's where our story begins. Fast forward thousands of years, and instead of looking more hopeful, it looks worse because the children of God are even further from a home with their king. Because where are they? They're in Egypt. For 400 years, they are even further from a good home, and they aren't ruling like we read about in Eden. They're being ruled. We're seeing how these connect and this is where we jumped in, guys. So let's review what we've done these first five weeks. Let's review what's happening because when we open up in Exodus, actually to the reader's joy, we see that God's plan hasn't been thwarted. This didn't catch God on his heels and then he just threw his hands up and said, I, I don't know what to do. God's plan hasn't been thwarted because we see that he raises up Moses to bring his children out of the house of slavery he rescues his children. We read that he rescued them on wings like an eagle. Hey, did you guys hear it in the sermon this week? When Anyone listen to the sermon? Yeah, yeah, where he talked about wings like an eagle, and I'm always like, yes, we already know that. This is great. This adds to our understanding of Revelation. He tells them that he will carry them out to be his possession, his royal priesthood, his holy nation. He led them to Mount Sinai, he gave them the law, and he entered into covenant with them. So remember what we learned. He revealed his glory on the mountain, and he revealed his heart in the law. So with the plagues, he liberated his children, and with the law, he showed them how they can maintain their freedom. Does that make sense? Does that help us kind of catch up? He revealed his glory through the thunder and the shaking and the storm. And to our surprise, maybe, he revealed his heart when he gave him the law. He revealed his character. And so what comes next? Well, this week we opened up to chapter 25 where God says through Moses, have them build me a sanctuary. Why? That I may dwell in their midst. Okay, so guys, our theme of this last week is actually one of the themes of the whole story of the Bible, and that is that God wants to be home with his children. That is the theme that runs from Genesis to Revelation, from the very first home in Eden to the forever home in the new heavens and the earth. God wanting to be home with his children. And we read so many details. Cubits, 
lengths, yards, fabrics, measurements, and blah, 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 blah. There were so many details, and we had to take note of those. And why did that matter? Well, one, it it mattered because, guys, this tabernacle, this tent, and later the temple was going to communicate to them truths about God. Even the details would reveal something about God. But we also need to understand why this had to be done with exactness. Why the blueprint had to be drawn up is because this tabernacle was a blueprint that pointed backwards and forwards. So this was reminding them of Eden, but it was also telling them that this is what my forever home with you will be like. Where God would dwell with them forever. So let's go through some of the things that we learned. Let's actually start with this. One of the first questions we answered was, when they were told to build this tabernacle and they needed to gather supplies, was it voluntary or obligatory? Voluntary. They were told to anyone who was willing, bring together the, have an offering essentially. And we asked, well, why does that matter? My first round answer was that God loves a cheerful giver. And I think that's true, right? Like we know where that, how that can um, lead to a devotional thought for us. But I think there's even more in this, guys. I think we need to remember, maybe you're sick of hearing this, we've got to remember their context. What was their past? All they knew was slavery. All they knew was slavery to a snake of a man, Pharaoh. And what they had done every day of their life was build Pharaoh's house. To build Pharaoh's city, they were forced to build his city under his cruel thumb, but now they're invited to build again. They know how to build. They know how to work. But this time, it's, being, it's an invitation. And this time, it's not Pharaoh's house. It's God's house. No longer laboring as slaves, but participating as beloved children. I love that. This jumped out of the Bible to me this week. I loved it. How different would that have felt, guys? Put yourself in their shoes. How different it would have felt to build, not out of compulsion, but out of choice. Not out of fear, but out of gratitude for their deliverance. Okay, so then they were given details on the furniture. So let's start with the ark. What did we learn about the ark? It was rectangular, it was made from acacia wood, it was covered in gold, there was rings and there was poles um, that would be added to this so that when this tent, this portable sanctuary was moved through the wilderness, this sacred, this special ark would not be touched by human hands. We read that on top of this ark, there was two cherubim, guardians again, on either side with an outstretched wing and with a gaze looking downward. And we read by moving around the Bible this week that this ark, on top of this ark, was the mercy seat of God. That was the throne of God. It was tucked back into the furthest room uh, in the most holy place. And it was so special. This ark was so special. This room was so special that it was only entered once a year. It was only entered by one man, the great high priest, on the Day of Atonement. And it was only entered. It was so special that it could only be entered with blood from a sin offering, 
Blood was sprinkled, providing atonement. It's a big word. Atonement, meaning a covering for sin. Did you guys think it was interesting, this kind of this picture that was drawn of these cherubim, these guardians, outstretched arm, one on either side, and their gaze is downward. Anyone think why? Why this detail? Why is this included? It's almost like they're pondering the beauty of what they're looking at. What, what are they looking at? Inside the ark was the, the tablets of the law, the book of the covenant. So they are looking at a broken law, splattered blood, and mercy. It's like they're longing to look at the provisions of God, the provisions of God for his young people, his word, his mercy, and atonement. And we read that this next piece of furniture, this table, was much like the ark in that it was rectangular, made of the same wood, covered in blood, having rings and poles again because this was a sacred table. And we read that it was a table for bread, which is the best kind of table ever, right? Not sure if it's sourdough like all you guys would probably put on there. But we read that this table has 12 loaves of bread, but that it also has dishes, pitchers and plates and bowls and silverware. This was a sacred table. We read about the golden lampstand. Don't just picture like a small little lampstand, but a huge one that sat on the ground and came up. It had seven budding flowers. It was lit day and night. Do you think about why this was so important? Did we ever read about windows in the tent? We know there wasn't electricity, but have we thought about how there wouldn't have been windows in here? How important would that lamp have been for the priests who were doing their work? to keep them from fumbling around in the darkness as they did the Lord's work. This lampstand was so important practically, providing light in their darkness. And we read about the curtains and the coverings and the screen. These were like layers of temporary walls, once again, so that this thing could be torn down, moved with the people, and be built again. Um, The inner layers were delicate. They were embroidered. They had bright colors. They had uh, the cherubim and embroidered in it, heavenly scenes at different, point, different points. But what about the outside layer? Instead of delicate and beautiful, it was ram skin that was dyed, then kind of like a leathery texture, ready to maybe weather the Middle Eastern climate. And then lastly, the altar of fragrance. This altar that was put right in front of the veil, right before the throne room, the most holy place, and the incense was burned both morning and night. So guys, I want you to really put yourself there. Think of yourself as one of those priests and think of all the senses that were engaged when you walked into this tabernacle. Think of them, maybe their hands would brush against that outer layer as they walked in and they feel that ruddy, brownish red skin. And then as they walked in, would they have just been overwhelmed with the smell of bread, the smell of the fragrance, the incense burning. They would see that candle. They would see the area around it illuminated. Think of what an intense experience that would have been. Maybe as they then ran their fingers along the delicate, soft, embroidered curtains on the inside. 
So what did this all communicate to them? What did it communicate to those first people about God? A ton. Think about it. If you walk into a place like this, if you walk into someone's home and the table is set, the table is set and the light is on, you think, they're home. Could it be that that's what God was communicating to his people? It maybe doesn't sound like a big deal, but think about it. This is a really big deal to these people and their relationship with God. He, broadly speaking, is saying, I am home with you, children. He's saying to them with that table of bread that I will provide. And remember the um, priests actually ate this bread and they drank the wine there. And maybe we're getting little hints of communion. He's saying, I will provide for you. I will sustain you in the wilderness. And when they saw that altar of incense, what was that communicating to them about God? That he's listening. You got to think that some of them were learning this for the first time because all they had known and all the generation before them and that before them and before them was, is he listening? We've been crying out for 400 years and it hasn't felt like he's listening to us. But now every day they get to see that fragrance rising up like prayers, communicating that God was listening to them. So then what about us? What do these things teach us, not just about God, but about Jesus? Well, there's a lot here, guys. I think we can look at our drawing and remember that God will provide for us, that God will sustain us and nourish us as we go through our wilderness seasons, that he gives us his daily bread through his word. We can look at the candle, the lampstand, and remember that Jesus will light up our darkness. Maybe we need to be reminded that Jesus is listening to our prayers. But it gets even better. It's not just that he's listening to our prayers, guys, but what did we read this week? That he is actually interceding for us. It's like he is carrying our prayers up like the incense rose to the top of that tabernacle. He is praying for us before the throne room of God. Right before the throne of God, Jesus is there speaking on our behalf bringing our prayers, maybe prayers that aren't 400 years old, but prayers that are weeks or months or years old, where we would be tempted to say, is, is he even listening? There's been no answer. The tabernacle is one of our reminders that we have a great high priest who has gone right before the throne, bringing our prayers to God. But there's one more thing that I think is being communicated about first God and then Jesus for us, guys. I think that ark is communicating and reminding us that Jesus is king. It almost feels like a surprise twist because as we're entering into this tabernacle, we're getting all sorts of homey vibes, right? Like you walk into someone's house, if the lighting is just right, and if it smells like warm bread and the table is set, we just feel oh, let's be comfy, right? Like, I, I'm just excited to commune here. But we can't do it at the cost of forgetting that there is a, there's a royal throne in the back of this house. Jesus is king. And as we touched on a couple weeks ago, it's almost like 
in between the cherubim, there is this reserved sign for the king of kings who was to come. We are reminded that Jesus is king, that he is ruling from his throne. There's an invitation there to say, oh, I'm not queen then. (laughs) He's in control, I am not. But let's go one more layer, guys, and let's ask, what do these elements teach us about the gospel? We have the joy of looking back through the lens of Christ and understanding this at a whole nother level. So as God moved into the neighborhood with the Israelites, making a home with his people, he would do all the more in the person of Jesus. Think about this. Jesus was playing on the outside with his human skin. There was nothing special about his human skin. Isaiah would say nothing that would attract us to him. Oh, but the inside? The inside housed the glory of God. It was the place where heaven met earth. Think of those heavenly scenes embroidered on the inside of the tent. And yet he allowed his tent, his flesh, to be torn. And in doing so, it's like breaking that veil and inviting us to come further in further in, nearer to Jesus. And where do we get to come forward to? A throne of mercy. Rather than a terrifying throne, it's a throne of mercy where we find our help in time of need. Because Jesus' flesh was torn, because his blood was splattered, because our sins were then atoned for, were covered. Guys, I feel like that scene in the most holy place where those cherubim are looking down right there, that sums up our salvation. What were they gazing at? A broken law, a covenant that had been broken, sin. And yet, in mercy, covered, paid for by the blood of Jesus. That is our salvation. Isn't it amazing? I mean, look at how the problem was solved through the tabernacle. Look at how our problem of separation with God was solved. Look at how it was solved with Jesus. This is great. This is a big deal. The nearness of God is our greatest joy and our greatest need. And it's solved according to the tabernacle. We should celebrate. We should should feel this. Who doesn't want their greatest problem solved? then why do I still feel far from home? If we are saying that the tabernacle tells us that God wants to be home with his children, then I'm gonna boldly speak up and say, hold on, I don't feel it. Why do I still feel anxious? Why do I still feel angry? We all had points in this week that we felt defeated Lonely, stuck, confused. Maybe some of us felt like we're moving backwards spiritually. But we're saying our biggest need, our biggest problem, it's been solved. No longer separated from God. So what gives, guys? I mean, actually, as we continued in the study, didn't we see that, I mean, God moved much closer than into the neighborhood with us because we read that we're the temples, right? We read that we now, after Jesus, as Jesus shares his identity with us, we're the temples. We house the glory of God. We house the spirit. 
How close has he come? He lives in us. We now walk around with Jesus' presence in us through the Holy Spirit. We should be fine, right? We should be great. No worries. Then why the blues? Why the anxiety? Why the grind? This is where it gets real. This is where we acknowledge that, yes, our hope is that our biggest problem's been solved. But then we're honest and we acknowledge that there's a tension that remains. And I don't think I have to convince you of this. This last week, one of my very good friends had a miscarriage. This was her fourth miscarriage in a row. So why did I not draw up a blueprint of the tabernacle and hand it to her, pat her back, and say, you'll feel better in a couple days? Because that friend in this room and the whole church of Christ right now is not yet fully home. We, like the children of Israel in Moses' day, are exiles. We are sojourners. Sojourners, meaning like pilgrims or guests. We are not yet fully home. We are living somewhere between Eden and our promised land. And I don't need to convince you of it. And you don't need to have had as hard of a week as my friend with her fourth miscarriage to feel this tension. We feel it when we commit a sin that we thought we were gaining ground on. We feel it when we have a morning of doubt on something that we've recently been faithful to believe. We feel it when somebody wrongs us. So maybe we need to add a question rather than closing it down at what is the problem that's being solved. We need to maybe ask, what is this tension that I feel as a sojourner, as an exile? And maybe our question becomes, how do we sojourn gracefully? I sat at this point in my study for multiple days. <laughs> Not sure what the answer was. Not sure what a specific answer was. And I'm sitting there, I'm like, Lord, what do we need to hear? How can we you know, really boil this down to application that we would feel courageous and brave as we await our forever home with God? But I actually think that we found our answer in day four when we went to Hebrews chapter 10. I'm going to read it to you guys. I think that this gives us our next steps. Hebrews 10, 19 through 25. I want you to listen for all of the good tabernacle language here, guys. Therefore... 
brothers and sisters, we'll just we'll say that, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. I wanna give it to you now in a paraphrase. This is from the message. Let, so let's do it full of belief, confident that we're presentable inside and out. Let's keep a firm grip on the promises that keep us going. He always keeps his word. Let's see how inventive we can be in encouraging love and helping out, not avoiding worshiping together as some do, but spurring each other on, especially as we see the big day approaching. Maybe this gives us next steps, guys. How do we sojourn gracefully? I think one thing from Hebrews 10 is we do it in response to what Christ has done for us. So we let the momentum and the good news of our salvation thrust us into practical Christian living, and we do it together. Ladies, these verses show us that our response to the good news of the tabernacle is that we don't give up meeting together. We don't take light the need for community, for fellowship. It almost seems like too, too lighthearted of an application, but I think we would be amiss to just be like, oh yeah, 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 I need to socialize. <laughs> That's not what's going on here. It's talking about coming together, stepping out of your comfort zone maybe, or maybe stepping more into the light in community. That is how we find strength and courage and grace to keep going as we wait for the day when Jesus brings us fully home to the home that God has made for us. So I get this image of us with kind of a renewed spirit linking arms and, and moving toward the body of Christ together linking arms with somebody that is struggling with doubt or depression or anger. And what do you say to them? You remind them that he who promised is faithful. And as you listen to them talk and you listen to them confess, you remind them, friend, he's home. He's home in your heart. Friend, he will sustain, he will provide. Friend, I know that this darkness is long, that this night is long, but Jesus is your light. He will illuminate this. Light comes from nowhere else but him. And you remind your friend that he's listening. You remind them, don't stop crying out. He is listening. He is interceding for you before the throne of God. And you remind them over and over again 
that he will bring us fully home soon. This is not the end. We are not fully home. This isn't as good as it gets. As we like to say, our best days are always ahead of us, guys. That's the message of the tabernacle. It's the story from the beginning that God provides a home for his children where we can dwell with him. And we don't have to gut it out until the heavens, the new heavens and the new earth. So we're all in different places, socially, personality-wise. Some of us have been in the same community for a long time. Some of us are in transition. Some of us are new. So it's going to look different for all of us. But ladies, I think we can all take this Hebrews 10 application and see where we need to step more fully into this obedience. So take a second and think about what, is it, what would it look like for you to stir up one another in love, to stir people up to good works. Is it as simple as does church attendance need to be more of a priority, a nice practical way to apply this? Is it being more intentional with a friend that you know is hurting? Is it maybe being more honest about how you're doing with the people around you? And we get just this incredible good news from Hebrews 10 that this will help us have a full assurance of faith. This will help us hold fast to our confession of our hope. This will help us keep us from wavering. It's not about muscling it ourselves. It's about looking at the one who has promised. Promised through a tent thousands and thousands of years ago. He who promised is faithful. So guys, let's, let's talk about this at our tables. Let's talk about what this would look like. Again, we're all in different places. Let's talk through some of the application questions from our week, but let's allow this, this text to work its way from our mind to our heart, out to our hands today. So I'm going to send you to your tables now, and um, you can conclude at 1030.